0: All right, as people drift back in, let us begin our final session of the day. We have uh, a treat for the concluding session, special. We have Professor Zygmunt Bauman with us. Zygmunt is the Emeritus Professor of Sociology in the University of Leeds, where I happen to know there is also the Sigmund Bauman Center for Critical Theory, um, he's well known, I hope, to all of you. If not, then you have the treat of reading his many books before you. Um, he's going to speak on reflections on the moral fallout of the great seminal catastrophe of the 20th century. And then we'll have questions. Zygmunt.
1: I am tremendously pleased and tremendously grateful to you, Mr. Chairman and Professor Bobbit, for reminding us of the link, very close link, I would say, intimate link between the 30 years long war of European nations waged on the planetary stage and another 30 years long war. Uh, of European uh, religions. Well, a uh, great war, but uh, waged locally in Europe. There is in, indeed a very intimate link between them, and forgetting about it would diminish our understanding of uh, the long shadow cast by the First World War because this long shadow is a reflection of a bigger shadow, very, very old shadow, 300 years old indeed. And uh, what is even more important, shadow which is still covering our reality and we don't know what eventually in, from this darkness or semi-darkness we emerge. Uh, Well, uh, thanks to Professor Bobbitt and our chairman, Uh, my task is very simplified, uh, the same way as uh, European philosophy according to Whitehead is a collection of footnotes to Plato. My presentation will be a collection of footnotes to Calhoun and Bobbitt. The issue was already introduced. Well, indeed, uh, I suggest that uh, 1913 in Europe was a culmination, or if you prefer, last act, and perhaps and hopefully, beginning of the agony of the 300 years long process started in 1648. In Münster and Osnabrück in Germany. And uh, a, a process which consisted in the entrenchment, establishment and entrenchment of the principle of territorial sovereignty. Territorial sovereignty, which became, well, the basis organization of human cohabitation on earth. Territorial sovereignty promoted, invented on European continent and then transported to the rest of the world through the long process of colonialism, imperialism, uh, but remaining basically European invention, only now being put in action in other continents, in some of them, anyway, in some regions of the world. Uh, In fact, uh, we need to go even beyond 1648 to 1555, where in Augsburg, also in Germany, gathered representatives of the ruling dynasties of Europe in order to find a formula, magic formula, which will put the end to the religious wars a devastating the European continent, particularly its western and central part. Uh, and they invented, in 1555, they invented the famous formula Cuius Regio, Eius Religio, which in very loose, but I think correct translation to English, means whoever rules decides in which God his subject should believe. That is what happened in 1555. 50, uh, there was a hope that uh, that put the end to um, bloodletting and the series of epidemic diseases which devastated European population. Allegedly German speaking part of Europe lost fifty percent of its population during that. And, ladies and gentlemen, if you read the, the documents of the time, they are strikingly similar to what could be written by the residents of Europe of Europe and not only Europe because I repeat that War Was Waged on the Planetary Stage, um, uh, written in between 40, uh, 1939 and uh, forty five. Um, I will quote you just one such a document, uh, written by a... a it's a taken from a family Bible in a Swabian village we live like we live like animals eating bark and grass no one could have imagined that anything like this would happen to us many people say that there is no God well it could be written between 39 and 45 very similar events but at the same time as in our own experience during our life at least my life you are younger than me but I remember it. Uh, I think that the first appeal to human reason didn't work properly and uh, as you know it took some one more war one more war in order really it to sink. And to be accepted as something inevitable which needs to be put into operation. Um, <coughs> and uh, such a war in that time happened. It's strikingly similar. 300 years ago, almost to the dot, between 1617 and 1648, very little difference really, in the duration of the years, uh, there was another 30 years long uh, great war of European nations, and only after that, in Münster and Osnabrück, and other delegations from uh, other delegations of from uh, ruling dynasties of Europe, uh, got together and decided to do something to impose the formula "cuius regio, e religio." on everybody else history repeats itself but it's not just a repetition it is uh, one is the cause the other is the effect the effect came to life to us and still is coming to light because we don't pay enough attention to it I think uh, now 300 uh, years later Uh, (coughs) and I repeat what collect them to event, it is the beginning and the culmination point, culmination point of the long process of entrenchment of the principle of of, uh, (coughs) um, uh, territorial sovereignty. (coughs) Well, um, both wars were devastating. One, under the banners of religion, different religions. The other, uh, 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 they wage under the banners of the nation's right to well establish their superiority and uh, fight back and put in their right place the smaller and the weaker nations. Uh, nationalism could be of different kinds. In more recent times, in 19th century, there were two fighting each other conceptions of patriotism, nationalism. One connected with the name of Treitschke in Germany. That was the fight for survival. The fittest survive. The unfit have to give room to them. Question of Lebensraum. Um, room for expansion and so on. The other was the version of Macini. Macini proclaiming um, the uh, emergence of the modern nations and modern ident- national identification connected that with the great challenge of um, humans to replace to replace the mutual warfare mutual suspicion, mutual intolerance with some sort of a rational negotiation and uh, the idea was that in the world divided between nations that uh, really may happen. Everybody will be a winner. There will be no winners and defeated. Everybody will be better off simply by Uh, peaceful cooperation, economic exchange with uh, its neighbors and also taking some care of their interests, mutual care of the interests of the other side as a principle, theoretical principle from there to the political and diplomatic practice of course as we all know Uh, There's a a very, very great uh, distance. But nevertheless, this action, let us not forget it, was present also in the negotiation which led eventually to the Westphalian settlement in Münster and Osnabrück. Uh, There were two different interpretations of it. For example, uh, Cardinal Mazarin in France and, uh, and um, Courbet, the minister of the French government, uh, thought that uh, Rhine, the river Rhine, should be not so much a border between two autonomous and mutually disliking countries, but it could be a corridor, a corridor uniting them. Well, it is not, nothing uh, completely senseless in it because, as you know, every border, whether you like it or not, plays two different roles. It separates but also organizes border traffic. There are leaking from one one side to the other. There is a point of contact and point of separation at the same time. However, in the course of time, I think that Reitschke's concept roughly... Uh, emerged victorious, and uh, mm, the uh, uh, interpretation of uh, has been generally accepted. Generally accepted as meaning, you take care of yourself, we will take care of ourselves, and otherwise we have nothing in common keep your place which is accorded to you, and don't try to go beyond it. The idea is still with us. The idea is still with us. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was uh, frequently and rightly mentioned in uh, this uh, this morning debate, but uh, what he actually introduced, as you know, was the League of Nations and Article 10 of League of Nations uh, uh, League Covenant so called is, um, uh, says that uh, it is bound to preserve, as against external aggression, the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all Member States. And if you try, if you start to castigate uh, Woodrow Wilson for not presaging the outcomes of such such an idea, then remember as well that when uh, the the convention gathered after the Second World War, when the results were already clear-cut, in the Article 2 of the United Nations Charter, Our fathers put the exacerbator, the prohibition made by uh, Wilson, saying that uh, uh, it is prohibited to use force to intervene in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. Now, it flies in the the face of the actual situation here, our situation, a situation which seems to be, by all means, irreversible. We can't go back from the fact that we are all now globally interdependent, interdependent. Nation-state, as Benjamin Barber recently reminded us, were made in order to service the case of autonomy and independence and better or worse but they acquitted themselves from that job for a better or worse uh, uh, purpose. Uh, However, they are singularly incapable of servicing the condition of interdependence in which we are all now. They didn't elaborate and they did much to prevent elaborating uh, the, ma- the means, the tools, the institutional instruments which can successfully deal uh, with interhuman relationship, interstate relationship, um, international relationship, under conditions of irrevocable mutual the, uh, de- dependency. <coughs> Uh, the problem of territorial sovereignty is still with us we are still uh, acting under the jurisdiction of United Nations with its uh, uh, statutes which say what I uh, a moment ago uh, told you about Um, it is true that after the end of the Second World War, there were people, just like Mazzini, like, like, um, like uh, Turbot and Mazarin, uh, which uh, derived different conclusions from the experience of the Second World War. Uh, Jacques Maritain, for example, in 1921, uh, 1951. Sorry, recommended to efface the word sovereignty from our vocabulary. He said it's a very dangerous um, concept, a very dangerous concept, leading to unpredictable consequences. Sometimes, sometimes, and very often, gory consequences, devastating consequences. And we should forget about this concept which failed the historical exam. Uh, Bernard de Juvenel, six years later, in 1957, uh, well, he was not so uh, uh, outworn so so resolutely against the idea of national sovereignty, but uh, he pointed out that uh, uh, for, according to the ruler, the right to define to define the moral principles, the ethical code of society uh, is completely unjustified and it, uh, and it um, cannot be cleaned of the danger, potential danger it contains. Therefore, he was considering the ways in which uh, the question of morality should be removed from the jurisdiction of the state or its political institutions, and consider the need, the need of uh, the opinion of the citizenship, opinion of the citizenship, as the the only legitimate source of the per- purposes which a Represent which representatives elected by them pursue. Now, as you very well know, the history took different uh, directions. Uh, uh, citizen was uh, either replaced by consumer or rather identified, re-identified, reinterpreted as a consumer of state services not as a producer, not as an author, not as an actor. Auctor is a, a combination of two nouns, uh, uh, actor and author, both author and actor. The uh, person responsible for shaping up the mindset, the attitude, the worldview of the nation, the shape of the laws promulgated by elected uh, representatives, and who is is at the same time responsible for putting these principles into life, uh, into practice. Well, there were two voices, not very many, and uh, I must make a public admission, public confession, I am uh, at the end, far end of my life at the moment, and probably it, will, it won't change already. And the mystery which evaded me all the time, and still evades me, and probably will evade me till I am, die, I am dead, is uh, how to make worlds flesh. How to establish the bridge, the connection, the transformation, the recycling apparatus which transforms a good idea in good deeds. Uh, at least uh, in this case, in both uh, Jacques Maritain and Bernard de Jouvenel nothing happened. Nothing happened. We are still in the grips of the principle of uh, territorial sovereignty. In the situation in which neither capitals, neither fi- nor finances nor ideas, information, economy, trade, uh, uh, international terrorism, uh, arms trade, and so on, are no longer territorial. They are global. And we are completely hopeless and hapless because we haven't developed a single, really well-acting institution which can cope with this new situation. We are. I like to use this concept in the state of interregnum. Interregnum means that the, all, the, all the ways of doing things properly don't work any longer properly, but the new ways likely to deal properly with these issues are still on the drawing board, or in experimental laboratory. Well, that's the actual situation we are. We haven't done away with the inheritance of the past. Um, our objections to it are normally very poorly or very wobbly ground, uh, uh, settled. And therefore, we are not clear, clear about the future of our cohabitation on Earth. I like to bring to your attention recently published by Michael Ignatieff uh, article in uh, The Republic. Uh, what he says, <clears throat> I like to quote exactly from him. Uh, the article is kind is. Uh, Uh, called Sovereign Equality and Moral Disagreement. And what she says there is that sovereignty is back. Our debates about the global economic crisis keep returning to the problem of sovereign debt and the need for sovereign guarantees to reassure the markets. We keep hoping that somewhere, sometime in the downward spiral of deleveraging and disillusion, there will be an authority, a sovereign, to take charge and put an end to our anxiety. This longing for an authority after years of market follies runs very deep. And he's right. Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sigmund Freud long ago uh, pointed out that uh, the whole civilizing process is the matter of choosing, of trading off, uh, exchanging between two equally essential values of humanity, which can be disposed of. We need both of them namely security and freedom. It seems to be, I suggest it's just a a very vague idea, but it seems to be that if you remember Hegelian triad, the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, we are now looking for a synthesis between two different things. First of all, there was a uh, concern, above all concern, with uh, the issue of security being uh, secured against the foreign invaders against people who want to introduce their ideas with a sword in their hand devastating wars we swallow and so on at the expense of the freedom of the subject because you are from now on prohibited to have your own ideas about God and uh, Uh, with further historical development also other ideas Um, uh, not only about God that's why I said that the uh, uh, period between the First and the Second World War was the period of the extreme extension of this priority of security over freedom. Now Uh, After that, we had a period of uh, fight for freedom, individual freedom, freedom of self-assertion, freedom of self-identification. Identities were proclaimed to be for grabs, um, but at a price, at a price of producing what I call individuals de jure, but not individuals de facto. People charged with full responsibility for their um, uh, fate, but not a given means to actually influence that fate, to uh, to make it more akin to their own preferences and their own wishes. Uh, the result is deregulation. Deregulation. Which goes on for several dozens of years. We deregulate everything. Uh, in the same way as the Uh, state which was called when I was a student administrative, bureaucratic state administrative state uh, bureaucratic state and and similar names now uh, uh, deregulated which means it um, got rid of most of its function which was originally expected to perform Um, now we are that was the uh, antithesis, according to Hegel. Hegel would say antithesis to the first thesis, which was that the security is above everything else, and everything else is worthy of being sacrificed in its, its name. Then there was antithesis, when every definition from outside, every setting of constraints, of regulation, and so on, was considered as an act of oppression, now we are looking for synthesis. Synthesis which will take the good part of each one of of these and other diseases uh, but cleaning them at the same time from parts which are unprepossessing and undesirable. Whether it is possible or not, that's a very big question on which I frankly admit I have no good answer. No good answer. Because, uh, well, to start with, future doesn't exist. And when it starts existing, it is already present, not future. So, predicting the future is, uh, I think, an idle uh, phenomenon. And I look back on my own life, it looks like a cemetery of prediction. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, the same situation today. The same situation today. What Michael Ignatieff says, and what, uh, why I quote him, to you. I will uh, make another quotation. The paradoxical conclusion, he says, of all of this, is that we want individuals to face less oppression, violence, and fear in this world. If we want it, we should wish for stronger sovereigns, not weaker ones. By stronger, he says, I mean more capable, more responsible, and more legitimate. If you want human rights to be anchored in the world, we cannot want their enforcement to depend on international institutions or NGOs. We want them anchored in the actual practice of sovereign states. It sounds very beautiful, really. He adds to that if you want markets um, that deliver jobs, income, security to the people of the world, we want sovereigns with a coercive capacity to force market actors to take responsibility for their risks. As I say, there's nothing at... Nothing to add, nothing to detract from that. It's a beautiful idea. with one, however, reservation that the fight between two values, security and freedom, goes on probably since the beginning of humanity on Earth. Problem is that two values are equally indispensable. You can't imagine, you can't describe a decent, satisfying life without both of them present. But on the other hand, you can't can't get more security without sacrificing more of your freedom. And you can't get more freedom without sacrificing much of your uh, security. That is the somber truth, and there is no philosophy we can actually deny the reality of this dilemma. So we are, uh, I think, standing in front of a choice, choice between, not a new choice, but uh, the same choice as our predecessors, our ancestors confronted only under different untried yet, unexplored yet circumstances of the global interdependence. Well, it is the choice between well, not choice, sorry. You can't choose here. But it is the attempt to make, to strike a right balance between the two values. <laughs> right balance. So that uh, what results is a durable, acceptable life. Life not exceedingly miserable. It is the fight, I repeat, between security and freedom or to recall unduly forgotten opposition suggested by Victor Turner, the great anthropologist of 20th century between structure and anti-structure which are both present in every aggregate of humans, in every society, in every community which are in a liber relationship. They attract each other, they need each other at the same time they are opposing each other and uh, make the life of the other more difficult than otherwise it would be. So I leave you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Chairman, perhaps you hope that I'll bring some answers, but I'm bringing all the questions.
0: I'm tempted to reduce the usual formula, reverse the usual formula, and ask the audience if you have answers since we received questions. But we will accept either questions or answers at this point. Bernard.
1: I, I,
2: I, I, thank you very much. That was sort of inspiring, partly because. You inspired me that it is very difficult to have an answer, and I like to be confirmed in my pessimism. I'm not sure whether you're pessimistic. I usually am. Um, But you say it in the end. You say that what it is is that we have to strike the right balance. We have to make a choice. We have to strike the right balance. That is what we have to do in the end. And it seems to me that this is the kind of relationship which we possibly have with our partners as well, and possibly you have with yours, and possibly have had with yours in the past. The suggest- what you usually have to sort this out is a marriage guidance service. Now, are we actually looking for some kind of international marriage guidance service? Because nevertheless, we are still requiring some kind of accepted institution which helps us to negotiate this balance. We're still requiring something outside us to assist us in this process of coming together. And so I'm not sure that we get the answer because it then becomes a recursive um, problem.
1: Well, I would say that I would uh, aware that the fact that something is very difficult or even impossible is not an argument for not trying. Uh, well, even if it's impossible but it's imperative, it is absolutely necessary. You have to go trying. And that's actually what uh, our European Union does. I think that uh, uh, Europe has uh, a new world role to play, the new role of avant-garde, probably uh, much more prep- prepossessing, much more pleasant than uh, the avant-garde role which Europe played in the 19th century. Or 20th century. Namely, uh, we are experimenting in Europe with such a way which can uh, reconcile the apparently opposite, uh, 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 opposite uh, tasks. Namely, on the one hand, the more security for national identity, the more uh, well established identity, separate autonomous identity of the nation. On the other hand, um, well, uh, on the other hand, acting for the common good of something of bigger totality, of bigger totality. Mind you, it's not the first uh, time we, go, we live in such a situation. In 19th century, uh, at the beginning of 19th century, beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it was very much the same story. Uh, until then, in Ancien Regime, the power was limited, to locality. And then, during the 19th century, in an uphill struggle, very, very severe struggle, the newly emerging imagined totality, namely nation or state, tried to establish itself on the top of it. Uh, It went very far. It resulted in a good deal of centralization, of condensation of power top on the top of society, far away from the life of uh, ordinary people. It is still the, is the fact. People more and more protest against feeling that political elites in their own nation speaks different language than the language which could express their real problems. So there is a gap between the two. Uh, uh, but uh, I think that uh, on the other hand, we, we have at the moment uh, uh, voices, for example, like Benjamin Barber. I wonder whether you know his late, last book, which is the uh, uh, question, uh, sentence with a question mark if the mayors rule the world. What he is saying is that uh, he goes all the, all the hock, so to speak. He says that uh, nation, state, nation states are bankrupt. Nation states fulfill their historical role. And you can't start building uh, planetary cohabitation from institutions of nation state because they are made in order to prevent it, precisely to prevent it. Benjamin Barber places his hopes, very controversial issue, but isn't our condition controversial, it is. So his controversial idea is that uh, the starting point and probably also the performer of the role will be uh, cities. Already for the first time in history of humanity, majority of humans live in cities, so it is not question of minority dictating majority and um, most of them who live in cities live in very big cities. According to Benjamin Barber cities can communicate with each other without constraints suffered by the elected governments of territorial states. And uh, well he even speaks there about World Parliament of Mayors World Parliament of Mayors which will not be making laws but which will share experiences because the problems of living in big cities are the same in Kinshasa and in London they are all facing the same type of ideas and if one city finds solution to them everybody else will follow on their own will and be very grateful on the way that is a picture of resolving the issue. But you will probably admit, you will agree that uh, uh, not just Benjamin Barber, but most of us desperately looks now for alternative ways of doing things, because we stopped believing that the government will deliver. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Just, 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 I
2: think I like the idea of the experimentation, and I actually think it is rather interesting that we sit here in London School of Economics and talk about this, because this is an experimental and it is an iterative process. What? Finding solutions, trying to learn things, it is an iterative process, and that is perhaps what this organisation is yeah.
1: for. Well, why? I believe I am not playing the game of predictions for reasons which I, I briefly explained. But uh, one prediction I can make that uh, the rest of the 21st century will be willy nilly, whether you like it or not, dedicated to desperate experimental attempts to remarry power and politics. Because now they are living in divorce. Uh, who has power is free from political control somewhere there in heaven in cyberspace and so on. And on the other hand, the, the politics suffers constant deficit of power. And that's why it drops one after another its function and doesn't deliver. Not because necessarily because uh, politicians are corrupt or stupid, but simply they don't have power to do it.
0: So Let me get the conversation back out to the the, uh, rest of the room there. There was a question on the same slide over there. Who had a hand? Somebody had a hand? No? All right, I'm going to take the opportunity to tell you why I think Benjamin Barber's wrong. It doesn't actually stem from World War I, so uh, my idea that we'd get back to the theme of the conference isn't the point. But uh, And to make it a short story, uh, rather than a long one, because I have a long list of reasons why I think he's wrong. Ben's analysis never considers the extent to which the, cons- the context for what mayors can do is in fact provided by states. States. So imagining the freedom, the relative innovation, the high creativity of cities without considering some of the things cities don't have to do because states do them um, is, I think, distorting of the picture. So they don't have to do the financial work that states do military defense work that states do, um, some of the other things. So uh, while being very interested in cities and very interested in creative solution finding, I think it's a sort of distorting idea to try to imagine the nation state out of the picture, in a sense. Yeah. Well, uh,
1: there's no need to to because I am convinced and I am unconvinced. <laughs> uh, I don't want to know very well that I am in some about it. Uh, uh, not just the question of uh, Benjamin Barber, take Jeremy uh, Lifkin, who is even uh, yes. more on the utopian side sure. and says that already under this ice cold surface of uh, bureaucratized uh, politics, there is a gathering wave gathering wave of what he call collaborative mm-hmm. populace, collaborative commerce. Revolution is not, he says, a utopia. Such revolution, morphological, morphological revolution, on the level not on the totality of organism, not taking uh, a winter palace in Petrograd or the, the, sorry, uh, Saint Petersburg, but uh, but uh, yeah, on a level of grass, it already happened, he says. Well, I would uh, laugh at it if not that I remember my student uh, t- uh, la- la years in London School of Economics. You know. I've heard of it. Yes, quite. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I was preparing my habilitation dissertation, and uh, it was on the topic of uh, sociological analysis of the history of labor movement in Britain. And for that purpose, I had to read archives of 19th century papers, which which I found in your library, and um, uh, which uh, paper to take as if not Manchester Guardian. Manchester was the heart of industrial revolution uh, in Britain, as you know. And much to my astonishment, I found plenty of information about one factory which was burned, one factory which was built, this sort of thing. But the idea of industrial revolution appeared for the first time in 1875, when it was almost over, when at the very end, retrospectively, people really accepted that what they went through was not building of a factory or burning a factory or a factory going bankrupt or a factory expanding but it was industrial revolution so one should be very careful with uh, making far-fetched, far-reaching generalizations when being an insider on unfinished, of unfinished process sure
0: I think this is yeah, uncontestably true. Let me see if I can bring it back to World War I and ask you another question. If I'm not walking the <laughs> floor, the idea of an industrial revolution was, of course, um, modeled on the idea of a political revolution and the French Revolution in particular when it was introduced, and introduced in a period at the end of the 19th century that continues on into the founding of the LSE and. Uh, Beatrice Webb's research for the 1909 Poor Law Commission which is what yielded some of those archives here that you were able to work on and I wonder if in the story of World War One, the story of the very um, development of state apparatus of not welfare states but states that took on new kinds of responsibilities for the lives of their citizens whether it's from Bismarckian Prussia, or from other examples of this, figures. That is, um, we have a war which mobilizes citizens in different ways than previous wars, for the most part. Is this linked to the development of state power engaging in a wider way in society than older notions of sovereigns and their engagement in society might have underwritten?
1: Oh, yeah, that's the difference between... Uh, that's the difference between that time and our present time. A fortunate difference, really, because the intellectual mindset at that time was really, as you just said, uh, considering the ultimate taste of, human, of, man, of manhood, so to speak, war, as the way to clean up society, as the way to bring more vigor, more, more lively, more, more making the world more lively, more Believable And uh, also more attractive. Uh, Hannah Arendt, sure. I remember, wrote about that. He, she actually catalogued all sorts of statements made by otherwise Tremendously intelligent and trem- tremendously humane people who really believe that in order to make humans more human, you need a war. Among them there was Thomas Mann, whom we revere and rightly so. As one of the great humanists, greatest humanists in history. Uh, So that is that is a problem. I don't discern. Perhaps I don't read uh, enough. uh, The semi similar outspoken, outspoken attitudes, outspoken. Because uh, mind you, if you take. uh, and, uh, if, if you pay attention, not just to the statements by great writers and philosophers, but if you take also uh, the food which, with which we all are fed daily, from early morning till late night by television, or this place shown there, you know, the theme of the television dramas, most, most profitable, with highest ratings, but the most profitable part of uh, mass media work, then you see that uh, the situation didn't change that much. Uh, take for example the Big Brother, or take the uh, weakest, uh, 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 link, weakest league. What they are about? They are about uh, rehearsal, dress rehearsal of the common ritual of exclusion, uh, kicking people out. And uh, the lesson which uh, flows from uh, television screens, in this case, is very, very uh, clear cut, that uh, after every week, week by week, someone must be excluded. It's the law of nature. Sure. There's no avoidance, all right? that's, a, that's a rule. So, under these circumstances, what is your rational behavior about? Well, to make sure that he will be excluded, not me. But the exclusion is uh, a law of nature, unavoidable, and uh, it is just a fight of survival. Now, this sort of a culture, it, it, culture now is soaked with this sort of understanding of the world, it is either me or him. It is not far away from either us or them. No. So, uh, you know, uh, everything may, may follow.
0: Indeed. John Horn thank,
3: thank, thank you so much for your address. Can I just ask a, a question which, which does come back to the First World War and also to the connection that you drew between the two World Wars, in particular,
0: yes, I'll repeat for you. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the,
1: the,
3: the, the question uh, is, is about the relationship of the First World War and the Second World War and the definition of rights as a universal uh, entity rather than something which is located in the national sovereignty that you were talking yeah. about. And my point is that while clearly you're right about the continued importance of national sovereignty, Is it not the case that after the Second World War, with the UN Charter of Human Rights, um, the European Council, um, that we have a set of international rights which do not depend on the nation? And the problem, of course, with the League of Nations was that minority rights depended upon the the nation. Is that a positive advance? Uh, Is the difficulty that we don't have an adequate instrument for (coughs) implementing it? Or is there something wrong with the idea itself?
1: It doesn't work properly. We, are very, very, we have very poor experience in preventing the outbreak of uh, uh, We have very uh, negative experience in uh, record in preventing the, out- the outbreak of wars. Uh, please remember that only after Second World War, the uh, Woodrow Wilson idea of self-determination reached Africa and Asia and faraway places. Uh, she was it was uh, first tested and put into operation by us Europeans and then uh, like everything else in the colonial system, in the imperial system, travel, travels all around the world. Now the same drama which uh, uh, Europe suffered on its own initiative, in its own home, in 1920 century uh, are played elsewhere. Therefore, we are somehow less concerned with that. But if you take a global view, then the situation is far from being prepossessing. I don't remember exactly now uh, uh, who uh, made this calculation, but I read a rather well-documented study which shows that at the moment when we are sitting here in this room, uh, there are sixty six wars going on around the world. Uh, the only point is that o- about most of them we never hear never hear it 's not interesting not uh, not uh, yeah, increasing the, the the selling power of newspapers and uh, certainly not something which the viewers of television would like to hear about so uh, uh, It is the question of different perspective. uh, What we were doing uh, 100 years ago now moved far away, right? Uh, Probably in 100 uh, years or so, uh, if globalization goes on, if the balance of power in the world keeps changing like it is changing now, historians then would probably change the periodization our history and say that nothing that ended that with the Second World War it was just the, uh, one stage of something going on the global scale Okay. Any other questions or answers?
0: Alright Zygmunt thank you and everyone thank you it's been a very interesting day